Morning, everyone. I was thinking this morning, I can't quite believe that this is the third time in a year's in a year that I've been in Missouri at Sycamore Grove. I wasn't expecting that, and uh, but that's good. I'm enjoying being here, and a lot of your faces are becoming familiar, and more and more of your names are slowly becoming familiar. And so it's it's just good to be here on a nice spring day. John was saying that he couldn't imagine how hard it was to get a bunch of preachers to sit down and be quiet. But I'm guessing till I'm done this morning, he might be able to imagine that. I was just looking at that clock. I want to make sure it was right because I'll try and keep an eye on it. Um... In uh, beginning of October, I don't know, many of you probably remember when Elmer Miller from up in Iowa and I were here for the listening weekend, right? Um, We really enjoyed that. We were really exhausted (laughs) at the end of the weekend. And I I hope that that in some form or or fashion you've been able to kind of keep reflecting on that. And I know you're in this season where you're kind of waiting for pastoral leadership. Um, it's been maybe eight months or something like that since you've had a pastor. But the Lord has still been present, hasn't He? And you're still learning from His Word, and you've been hearing testimonies. And uh, every once in a while, I'm able to, to listen in on some of that. But um, I'm just going to be pretty vulnerable this morning. I'm just going to ask you a couple questions, if that's all right. Are, are you doing okay as a church? I mean, you, you really look okay. And you sound okay. Are you getting a little bit impatient? Or are you being patient and waiting on the Lord, as the psalmist says? Just, how, how are we doing? Go ahead and talk to me. I want to know. <laughs> impatient. All right, Randy, go for it. <laughs> Who's the patient person here? All right, so we've got some patient people. And that, and that's the tension, right? We've got different kinds of people with different kinds of ways of looking at things, and so we wrestle with that together as a church, don't we? And um, but yeah, Randy, sometimes I get impatient, <laughs> and then I think about those verses that say, "They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength," and uh, and then we kind of wrestle with like, well. How fast do we act? Like, what, what's our part in acting and what's our part in waiting? And that's all figuring out what it lives that, or means to live by faith. At least that's how I kind of feel. And um, so anyway, I, I've been staying in touch with your elders and occasionally, you know, somebody on the search committee. And so I know you've been wrestling around a little bit. You've, you've had Don Patterson come once, right? And kind of been praying through that and... John, why don't you just come up? I know you and you and Duane had an opportunity to sit down with with Don and talk about that, and just give us an update on where that's at. Yes, we were able to eat supper with Don at a pastors' conference, the four of us with him, and it was so noisy that we couldn't hear ourselves think, and so we found a quiet room, and the three of us sat down and talked, and he is still. 
has no idea what God wants, where God wants him to be, and he wants to come, and but he just don't think that Charlene is physically able for the, to make that move, and she is declining in health anyway. And so, at the end, we had a very good meeting. We sat there and talked quite a while, and at the end, Don prayed for us and basically said, "I really don't want this door shut tight, but I think it's shut." And so. I think it's time for us to move on, whatever that looks like. But, uh, yeah, that's where we're at. Thanks. So we wait and we move and figure out how to do that. I want to, I'm going to be pretty vulnerable with you this morning. Um, back in the listening weekend, Elmer and I were were sitting with a couple that we had never met before, and it was Kyle and Caitlin Zook. And for whatever reason, I just stopped what they were saying, and I just asked them, I said, for whatever reason, I feel like I'm supposed to ask you, have you ever felt a call to ministry? And he looked at me like a deer in the headlights. He's like, why did you ask me that? Because they've actually been talking about that. And so we, so we visited some about that and I've stayed in touch with Kyle and Caitlin over the last few months and he's been sharing with the elders. I think he preached here a time or two, right? Is that right? And, um, so I met with, or Karen and I met with Kyle and Caitlin yesterday and we talked more about that and, and where they're at in their journey. And we met as elders last night and talked more about that. And, um, Here's what we would like to invite you as a church to be a part of. So there's somebody in your midst who feels a strong call that God has something for them to do in ministry. And we would simply like you to invite you as a church to come alongside and begin to pray for them and with them. And the search committee is going to keep meeting it's not the end of a search. It's just like, well, if we've got somebody here in the church who has a sense of call to ministry in this time of transi- transition, let's just have them continue to explore that and continue to preach and um, and pray for them. And so that's that's kind of the action part. And the other part is we're going to keep waiting on the Lord to see what He wants. And so this is this is no way in, in any form or shape saying Kyle's going to be your pastor. It's just like he has a call. And would you come alongside him and give him an opportunity to explore those gifts during this time? Maybe maybe it's preparing him for here. Maybe it's preparing him for somewhere else. We don't know. But I just would like and the elders would like to invite you as a church to just begin to to just pray with pray with us on that and explore that together. Would, would that be too much to ask just to invite you as a church to to explore that with Kyle and Caitlin and come alongside them in prayer and see what God does with this over the next number of months or years, whatever it is? And would it be okay if, if you're good with that, could you just stand so kind of we know where everybody's at? It's just, it's just saying we're going to pray with them and come alongside of them. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I really appreciate that. You're not you're not committing to anything other than 
we're going to get behind this young couple and what they sense God is doing in their life. And then we're going to let the future up to the Lord. So, and your elders are going to kind of, kind of put a plan together how he can, can do some preaching and, and mix that in with other ones of you like you've been doing, just a little more focused for, for Kyle to be a part of that. So, thank you. You can be seated. Well, you know, I just got to say a couple more things. There's, there's nothing that excites me more as, as a conference pastor than, than seeing people being willing to express that they have a call from the Lord for some purpose. Um, and there is a vulnerability in that that is really scary. I remember the first time I vocalized and began to share with people that I felt the Lord was calling me to, to some kind of pastoral ministry. And it was the scariest thing I've ever done. And the reason is, is because something that's so deep and close to your heart, when you begin to share that with the people close to you, and if, if you feel rejected, like that is, that is huge. And so I just, I just love when, when someone is vulnerable enough to to kind of start to share in the church because part of the part of the part of the body's um, role in this is to to help discern and affirm those kinds of things as you interact and so anyway I need to get on with the message but well I felt uh, I felt drawn today see if I can run this thing right yeah there we go. I felt drawn today to look at a very specific story of someone who had an encounter with Jesus. How many of you have had an encounter with Jesus? Many of you have had an encounter with Jesus. Some of you have shared testimonies. I remember listening to Chris's testimony back like last August or something like that. Some of you have shared testimonies of encounters that you had with Jesus. And as we think about having an encounter with Jesus, there's some questions that we can ask. Who were they or who were we before we met Jesus? Who were we or who were they after they met Jesus? And what changed? Because we're never the same after we have an encounter with Jesus. At least I hope not. So a little background to our encounter story this morning. We're going to be in Luke. Jesus was was teaching the good news of freedom, the good news of the kingdom of God, and he was doing it in the synagogues. You can turn to Luke 7 if you're opening your Bibles. Jesus was driving out evil spirits in an instant. Be gone, and they were gone. Jesus was healing the sick. In an instant, fevers were gone in an instant. Skin with the, with the terrible disease of, of leprosy was clean in an instant. People who were paralyzed got up and walked in an instant. Jesus declared forgiveness of sins 
in an instant? Jesus called for less than perfect people to follow him to be his disciples right now. And he touched what was considered unclean, which was absolutely radical. Encounters with Jesus changed people's lives in an instant. So a little bit of a a background. Jesus was talking to the crowds of people, or he's talking to his disciples, and there was these crowds of people all around. And and this is what he talks about in Luke. If you want to flip, I think it's Luke six. I didn't put the reference down. But here's what he was saying in front of the crowds of people. He said, "Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God." Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now or cry now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man or because of me, Jesus. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. But that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already see, received your comfort. In other words, you've got everything you need on earth, and you've all, so you've got your comfort now. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So that's the, that's the background to this encounter with Jesus that we'd like to look at this morning. I just want to say there's a lot about this encounter with Jesus that we don't know. But there's a, a few very important things that we do know. Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. My, my, the title of my Bible says, Jesus is anointed by a sinful woman. The fact is, Jesus was anointed by a prostitute. That's the, that's the essence of it. Verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. But she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Jesus answered, two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them... We'll love him more. 
Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus is at a Pharisee's house. He's eating dinner. And if you can kind of get the picture, it's probably a big open courtyard. And and people love to gather around and listen to the Pharisees and Jesus talk about the Scriptures and debate things. And so it'd be like, I don't know, do you guys have a picnic area or pavilion outside anywhere? I'm not sure. But something like that. And so kind of all the important people, and Jesus is included in that this time, are kind of gathered in the middle of there eating dinner. And all the crowds, the whole community is gathered around listening to what happens. And... Um, says, when, when a woman who had lived a sinful life, a prostitute, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, that there was this, Jesus was there and there was all this discussion going on, she came and pushed her way into the place that she finally got to Jesus' feet. There's a lot we don't know about this woman. We don't know where she came from. What we do know that sometime between when she was a little girl and when she became an adult, she went from being somebody's little girl to being a prostitute. We don't know why. She could have been stolen away and sold as a, as a, as a sex trafficked child or teenager. Maybe her parents abandoned her. Maybe she actually grew up in a wonderful home and made some really bad choices. We don't know. But what we do know is she had a a reputation in that town of being a prostitute. There's a story. Everybody has a story. And just like most people, we don't know the whole story. All we know is what we have in the Scripture and so this, this woman is, for whatever reason, is so desperate to get to Jesus. And she brought this, this perfume, this, this oil in this alabaster jar, and she began to pour it on Jesus' feet. And to kiss His feet. In other words, she was anointing Him and treating Him as a king. 
There's something we need to remember here is that where does a prostitute get her money to buy oil? Most likely she got the money from selling herself. And that's what paid for the oil that got poured on Jesus' feet. Where did the tears come from? Life of pain and misery. Desperation. All of this is being poured out on Jesus' feet. Verse 39, when the Pharisee, who had invited him, invited Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, you know how we think things in our mind, we say things to ourselves. I have to wonder if I'd have said the same thing that, that he said. He said, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. If he would only know who she is. How many times do we say that about people? Oh, if they only knew. If they only knew what I knew. I want to make a point here, church, that our sin does not make Jesus dirty. But His righteousness makes us clean. Our sin does not make Jesus dirty. It's actually the other way around. His righteousness makes us clean. (laughs) Jesus is kind of smart, you know. He's like, Simon, I have something to tell you. And then he goes into this simple little thing that all of us can understand. Two men owed money. One owed 500. One owed 100. Or the other actually 50. Neither could pay the debt back. See, we all have a debt that we can't pay back. He says, which one of those who has their debt forgiven is going to love the most? Well, the Pharisee was pretty smart too. And he says, well, of course, the one who's been forgiven much. Jesus says, yeah, you're right. You're right. And then Jesus, in verse 44, it says, He turned toward the woman and He said to Simon. Isn't that interesting? He didn't turn to Simon. He turned to the woman. And said to Simon, he said, do you see this woman? I think Jesus was asking, do you really see this woman? Not not as an object of lust and not as an object of disgust. But do you, Simon, who think you know so much, do you really see this woman? Do you really see... The little girl who got lost in a dark world. Do you really see her? Jesus says, I came to your house today. The Pharisees didn't even like him. And Jesus still came to his house to minister and talk about the scriptures. 
with Simon the Pharisee. And he says, you didn't even give me water to wash my feet. The, the least common courtesy in that day was to give somebody water to wash their dirty feet. Be like you guys standing out here with a hose this morning washing the cars. It's the least common courtesy. It's okay. I, I love your Missouri roads, by the way. He said, you didn't give me a kiss, which was a common practice in that day to greet with a kiss, a kiss of love. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head. In other words, you didn't recognize me as the king I am. You didn't show me honor. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Perfume, he doesn't say this, it's an inference that she probably bought by selling her own body. Therefore, I tell you, this is profound, church. Therefore, I tell you, Simon, that her sins are forgiven. Why? Because she asked for it? I mean, this totally wrecks me. She didn't ask. He says, because she loved much. Her sins are forgiven because she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Wow. Do you know how many times I stand in the seat of the Pharisee? Or sit in the seat of the Pharisee? Verse 48, Then Jesus said to her, He said to her three things that every one of us is longing to hear. He says, Your sins are forgiven. And then in verse 50, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Think about that. Here's a woman who is desperate. She is dirty. She is looked at and discussed by everybody in the town. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Every one of us is longing to hear those words from Jesus. I remember the day I had an encounter with Jesus. And those three, three phrases weren't necessarily spoken, but I understood them and I felt them and I lived them. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What's sin? What's sin? It means to miss the mark, to err. It's an offense and a violation of divine law. To wander from the path of uprightness and honor, not re- representing the image and likeness of our Creator. Because everything that we do that's called sin in the Scripture offends and downgrades other people. Everything from gossip to sexual immorality, all those things degrade other people and ourselves. In other words, we, we degrade the image and likeness of our Creator that we were created in. It's not like God just decided to make up some random list of things that we should and shouldn't do. There's a reason for that. In 
And our dear friend was living in sin. What's it mean to be forgiven? It means that something's sent away. I pushed some button. Okay, it went away. I love this next one. It means to expire. In other words, something that is expired has no control over us anymore. To disregard, to keep no longer. When Jesus said to this prostitute that your sins are forgiven, He was saying these things have no control over you anymore. Wow. Did I do something to my clicker when I pushed that button? There we go. And then he said the second phrase, your faith has saved you. In other words, your conviction of the truth. Conviction that Jesus is the Messiah. The the trust and confidence that springs from faith. She was totally convinced. Or she wouldn't have offered everything that she had to offer, which was the oil and the depth of her despair, her tears. She gave it all to Jesus. She was convinced, for whatever reason, that He was the Messiah. That He was her only hope. Your faith has saved you. In other words, being convinced of that, you are now going to be kept safe and sound. You're going to be rescued from destruction and danger. You're delivered from the the penalty of judgment. That word salvation, to experience salvation, means to live wide open and free. Experiencing the wholeness and shalom. And so now she doesn't have to walk around town anymore with her head down. With her heart downcast. She can begin to walk upright and open and wide and free. That's what Jesus does for us sinners. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I love this. Go. Go live life. Go pursue the journey. Continue the journey. Which actually includes departing from this life. I love that picture of Jesus saying, go. Go live. Go pursue your life. Psalm 4.8 says, I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. See, once we're convinced of who Jesus is, we have faith in Him, then we can begin to live life in safety. We don't have to be afraid anymore. Go in peace. Go in security and safety and prosperity. Go with a tranquil soul. It reminds me of Hebrews. Whoops, I went the wrong way. Sorry. Reminds me of Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We can try and try and try to please God, but without faith, without being convinced of who He is, it's impossible to please Him. Because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Wow, is our, is our 
is our prostitute friend a beautiful picture of that? She was convinced of who Jesus was. She was convinced that he was existing right in front of her. She was convinced that she, he would reward her. And she vulnerably and openly sought him out right in front of the whole town. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And we don't know what happened the next day. She went. She left. In peace. I wonder what happened the next day. There's so many things I'd like to know about the story. I wonder what happened the next day when, do you think the whole town embraced her the next day? Is this new daughter of God? Would we? So if the town didn't embrace her and still kept rejecting her, what'd she do when she got hungry the next day? What would have been her first inclination? What she's been doing, right? We tend to go back to what we've been doing. And so she had to grab a hold on again to, I'm convinced of who Jesus is. And I'm convinced that He set me free. And wrestle with that. I don't know, can I, I can relate to her. When life gets tough and I want to revert back to something. And we wrestle with God. Is it true? Am I set free? Am I saved? Can I actually live in peace? Or do I got to start taking control again? Does anybody else relate to those kinds of... Jesus... Jesus always seemed to be rebuked by the religious for being a friend of sinners. And yet the story seems to suggest that Jesus is saying it's actually for your good that I'm a friend of sinners. He didn't come for the righteous, right? He said that. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sick. I think that's why we're drawn to Jesus encounters like this one. Every one of us can identify with either the Pharisee who liked to debate the law and maybe even with good intentions, learn more or boast about good works and perform well and look down on those who don't. So we can identify with him or we can identify with the woman who was so broken that all she could do is fall at Jesus' feet, weeping and surrendered and Serving him the only way she knew how is to pour out everything that she had on his feet. There's both of those in all of us, isn't there? Both need forgiveness and freedom. Both need the proclamation from Jesus that your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. Go live. Go live. I'm going to take a drink because I'm not quite finished yet. Is that all right?
Romans 8 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. If I could summarize Romans 8, it would be simply something like this. When we are in Jesus, when we believe, when we have faith, not faith in ourselves and our own self-sufficiency, but but when we were united with, with Him and abiding in Him, it says there is no more condemnation. How, how much condemnation is no condemnation? You can answer that question. It's not a trick question. How much condemnation is no condemnation? So our prostitute friend can now go live with no condemnation. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, I see some nods. And you and I can go live with no condemnation when we're convinced. When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you and go in peace. We can live with no condemnation. Living out from under condemnation, a death sentence, so to speak, we can actually really begin to live with freedom. Oh, and this would be fun. How about some joy? Yeah, some joy and some hope and some purpose. And our purpose is no longer in this this fruitless attempt to save ourselves from our death sentence, but now to bring glory to the one who has freed us. What a difference. Instead of trying to save ourselves, we live out of joy for the one who actually saved us. What a different place to live from. And then Jesus deposits His Spirit in us, the very Spirit of God, which now controls our life instead of our selfish nature. The mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. And by that same Spirit, we are declared sons and daughters of God. And He is Abba, Father. And the Spirit intercedes for us when we suffer as we as we wait along with all of creation for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. For all things to be restored to perfection. And in that waiting, we see how God works for the good of those who love Him in all things. And he, and he calls and He justifies and He glorifies. That's a really quick capsule of Romans 8. And then that brings us to Romans 8.31. I need to stay over here. That floor squeaks over there. And Paul asked the question. He says, what shall we say in response to this? All that that I just, that big capsule that I just said, what shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, church, who can be against us? Right? For the church, for our prostitute friend, if God is for her, if God has released her, if God has released us, who can be against us? I think it's actually a pretty good question that Paul asked. Do you know anything that can stand against us if God is for us? And then he goes on. Asking some more questions. He actually answers with a question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? How will He not give us all things? The One who did not spare His own Son. You know, I'm kind of starting to like you guys a little bit. 
But I don't know. I only have one son. I don't know if I give them up for you guys. God did. He gave him up for us all. Isaiah 53.10 in the King James Version says, It pleased God to bruise him. It pleased God to bruise his own son, the suffering servant, Jesus. It's like God... If he's pleased, it's like God delighted in. It gave God pleasure. I don't know, could we say it made God happy? It fit God's purposes. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. The NIV says it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It pleased God to break into pieces His only Son for us. Like, like maybe I could think about like letting you guys borrow my son for a while if you needed some help or something. But, but to, to say that it, it pleased me, it made me happy to break my son into pieces for you guys. It ain't happening. But God did. It says that many were appalled by his appearance. His, he was so disfigured that he was beyond that of any man. And his form was, was marred beyond any human likeness. Think of all the wars throughout history. It says that Jesus was, was marred and bruised and beyond the form of any man who ever lived. Think of the destruction of the human body in all the wars. And Jesus, it says, was marred beyond anyone. And it pleased God to do that. How can we understand crush? Because we have to get this. If we don't understand this, we're not going to understand that new daughter of God in our story. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes for a minute. Just listen. This is from When God Weeps, Why Our Sufferings Matter to the Almighty by Joni Erickson Tata. The face that Moses had begged to see was forbidden to see was slapped bloody. The thorns that God sent to curse the earth's rebellion now twisted around his brow. On your back with you, one raises a mallet to sink the spike. But the soldier's heart must continue pumping as he readies the prisoner's wrist. Someone must sustain the soldier's life minute by minute, for no man has the power on his own. Who supplies breath to his lungs? Who gives energy to his cells? Who holds his molecules together? 
Only by the Son do all things hold together from Colossians 1.17. The victim wills that the soldier live on. He grants the warrior's continued existence. And the man swings. As the man swings, the son recalls how he and the father first designed the medial nerve of the human forearm. The sensations it would be capable of. The design proves flawless. The nerves perform exquisitely. Up you go. They lift the cross. God is on display in his underwear and can scarcely breathe. But these pains are a mere warm-up to his other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day, an unearthly foul odor began to waft. Not around his nose, but around his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being. The living excrement of our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father... He must face his father like this. From heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed and shakes his mane and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him so. Never felt even the least of his hot breath, but the roar shakes the on-seed world and darkens the visible sky. The son does not recognize these eyes. Son of man! Why have you behaved so? You have cheated and lusted and stolen and gossiped and murdered and envied and hated and lied. You have cursed and robbed and overspent and overeated and fornicated and disobeyed and embezzled and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor and so played the coward and so belittled my name? Have you ever held a razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk. You who mold young boys and peddle killer drugs and travel in cliques and mock your parents. Who gave you the boldness to rig elections and format revolutions and torture animals and worship demons? Does the list never end? Splitting families and raping virgins and acting smugly and playing the pimp and buying politicians and practicing extortion and filming pornography and accepting bribes. You have burned down building and perfected terrorist tactics and founded false religions and traded in slaves. Relishing each morsel and bragging about it all. I hate, I loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course the son is innocent. He is blamelessness itself. The father knows this. But the divine pair have an agreement. And the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The Father watches as His heart's treasure, the mirror image of Himself, sinks drowning into raw, liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The sun stares up at the one who cannot, who will not, reach down or reply. 
The Trinity had planned it. The Son had endured it. The Spirit enabled Him. The Father rejected the Son whom He loved. Jesus, the God-man of Nazareth, perished. The Father accepted His sacrifice for sin and was satisfied. The rescue was accomplished. Brothers and sisters, that's crushed. That's bruised. That is not, that is God not sparing His only beloved Son, Jesus, but giving Him up for us all. That's the reality. And the Apostle Paul simply asked the question, if God did that for us, If God did that for us, that He gave us Jesus, He didn't spare Jesus, why would He not graciously give us all things? He gives us Jesus and He gives us all things necessary to bring this wonderful salvation, this, this restoration to completion. God gives us life. Go in peace right now. He has made known to us the path of life. Church, don't believe for one second that God would give up His Son for us and then for some reason abandon us. He will provide for you as a church. He will provide for you as individuals. You see, if we believe the lie of the enemy, we will begin to resort to depending on ourselves again. And then our faith doesn't save us. And we can't go live in peace. How do I know? Because every time I try and do that, nothing goes well. And I get all angsty. If you know what that means. Then the peace goes. Maybe, you, maybe there's some of you here that have never lived in the freedom and joy of knowing that Jesus paid the price to bring you into His kingdom. Maybe you've always felt like you just need to add a little bit more. To what Jesus has already been, already done. Just to be sure. Right? It's just not a little bit more. Surrendered to Jesus, we can live in the truth of the words that our sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this encounter with Yourself. This sinful woman who, who just brought her everything to You and poured it on Your feet. Everything that she had to offer physically, materially, and the 
deep emotions of her soul and the brokenness of her soul. She brought it all to you. And she found release to go and live in peace. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is not living in that peace, that has not immersed themselves in in Emmanuel's blood, the, the crushed and broken Christ, and experience the life of the resurrected Jesus. Lord, I pray that, that they would vulnerably pour themselves out to You. So they can experience wholeness and joy and hope and purpose. Lord, I pray for this congregation as a group, as Your body, as Your bride. Lord, as they continue to wait on You, I pray that You would renew their strength, that they would begin to soar in ways they've never thought or imagined. Lord, walk with them on this journey. We know You are. Help them to take Your hand, to trust You. To enjoy Your new mercies each morning. To enjoy being Your children. To enjoy calling You Father. Living in your freedom and salvation and peace. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your presence here. In Jesus' name, amen.